This podcast is brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. BankInfoSecurity.com is your source for the news and views shaping security and risk management within the finance space. EMV Interchange and Regulatory Reform. What changes can the payments industry expect to see in 2011? Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group. I'm here today with Philip Andre, an industry consultant who's been involved with the EMV movement since the early 90s, who shares his perspective about EMV in the U.S., smart cards, and e-commerce. Philip, you've been involved in the payment space for a number of years. As the discussion revolving around a possible move to EMV in the U.S. heats, you've got some interesting perspectives. In fact, you've been involved with EMV since its inception. Can you tell us a bit about your background and experience with EMV in Europe, where the standard actually got started? Well, good morning, Tracy, and thank you for the opportunity today. My history in the payments industry starts back in 1991 when I joined Europay International, uh, based out of Brussels, now part of MasterCard. And one of the first uh, pieces of work that uh, my team was involved in was a European study on the card authentication method that was being driven by the European Council for Payment Systems. And in that study, we came to the conclusion that the only effective way of uh, addressing the problem of fraud related to magnetic stripe cards was to move towards a chip card or a smart card as it was then known. Parallel with that activity, in 1992, one of our key members, France, was uh, reaching critical mass in the introduction of chip cards as a mechanism for authenticating payments in the uh, French marketplace, a project that had started back in 1984 when they tested the technology and came to an agreement as a community that this was the way forward. And as I just said, in 1992, they reached a, a moment in time where all the point-of-sale devices and all the cards had become chip-enabled. Obviously, this created some interesting acceptance problems that we're now reading about in the uh, U.S. press as Americans travel to Europe and are confronted by merchants who are now familiar with smart cards and are uh, comfortable accepting smart cards and are uncomfortable accepting magnetic stripe cards. In 1993, in about October, my boss, the CEO of Europay, walked into my office one day and said, Philip, I need the definitive specification for smart cards by the uh, end of next month, and gave me basically 30 days. What he didn't tell me is that he was going off to an EFMA conference, the European Financial Management Association down in Cannes, France, where he was going to challenge Visa uh, on dates. And at that conference in the morning, Ed Jensen, the then CEO of Visa International, said that on the 23rd of, of November, he would publish a specification. And Ron, that afternoon, got up and uh, had a chuckle and said to Ed that uh, we would be producing our specifications on the 22nd of November. About that time, uh, I was then um, tasked with forming EMV and went off to Chicago to meet with Visa and MasterCard and to argue about the name, should we call it MVE or NEV or VME, and subsequently agreed that we would call it Europay, MasterCard, and Visa based on the ascendancy of the alphabet and the fact that smart cards were coming out of the European marketplace in terms of patents and first use. In 1994, we began to look at... Uh, from a collective perspective, the, the three payment associations, what would be the, uh, the foundations for a business plan that uh, our members would be able to use 
and that we would use for driving the technical uh, developments that we were uh, embarking on. Obviously, our first thought was fraud, and we were looking at, at counterfeit. We were looking at lost and stolen and trying to mitigate that fraud through the use of, uh, of the chip card. The second was to continue to allow the offline authorization or approval of credit cards in, in an environment where telecommunications costs were rather expensive and people were talking about 30 or 40 cents per call to authorize a credit card transaction and therefore didn't want to move like the U.S. and North America had to a 99% authorization rate and wanted to stay down in the 25 to 40% rate that uh, we were used to in the European market. Uh, interestingly enough, in the French market, they had reached um, about 40% before they began their migration and had reduced the online authorization rate to about 10% when they completed the migration to smart card or chip and pin as it's now being called. The third piece of the business plan was we recognized that the signature was not an effective cardholder verification method and we wanted and liked the use of PIN as we were seeing in the debit card marketplace to move also into a mechanism for assuring the identity of the cardholder when we looked at credit card transactions. Unfortunately, to go to an online PIN environment is a very expensive adventure, especially when you think about cross-border transactions, uh, which were predominantly uh, rather important to us at Europay given that that was our mainstay of business, was the international transactions between the various countries within the European markets. So we were looking at a way of adding PIN to a credit card without requiring an online authorization. And the fourth and final piece of our business plan was to look at value-added services, uh, what I will call the multi-application dream, the ability to put multiple payment cards onto a single piece of plastic to uh, Add loyalty, identity, healthcare, whatever uh, facilities and services the issuing bank might agree with its partners. I'd like to come back to that kind of multi-purpose card discussion when we talk a little bit about mobile going forward. But I want to recap some things that you and I have spoken about in the past so that we can share some of this with our audience. We've spoken about EMV in the U.S. and the challenges that the industry faces. One of the challenges revolves around the market's fragmentation. With so many card issuers, processors, networks, and merchants, we have a lot of decisions to make. If a move to EMV were spearheaded in the U.S., what entity would lead the charge? Well, this, this obviously is a, is a key issue. And as we look at the other markets that have moved to EMV, there is consistently a central body, uh, an association, where all the financial institutions and the card brands meet on a regular basis and are able to share uh, common needs and common views on particular uh, areas of concern. And obviously fraud, uh, being a criminal activity and, and uh, not in the social good, has always been a consistent topic for these common groups. Unfortunately, in the United States, there is not a, uh, an association where all the debit card issuers, all the uh, acquiring processors, the acquirers, and the card brands come together and share a cocktail and share conversation and talk about non-competitive issues. So we do have a, a major issue here in terms of creating that forum where the various constituents, the various stakeholders can sit down, share their concerns, and begin to talk about a collective way forward. Um, 
one of the other things that we've seen on a global scale is that the government tends to have some view on this because obviously the consumer, the citizen, is uh, is affected by fraud, and they're the ones that go through the trials and tribulations of dealing with customer service to get any transactions that were fraudulently uh, transacted against their accounts corrected. So sometimes the governments will go to these associations and, and basically say, if you don't, we will. And, and then you get a kind of a collective view that's driven by some policymakers who are saying, you know, get on with it. We don't want to regulate. And, and uh, associations, a collection of, of the stakeholders who are interested. Recently, I had a chance to sit down with Richard Oliver at the Atlanta Fed, Federal Reserve, who's been fairly outspoken on the need to look at a more secure uh, payments environment, uh, specifically around the cards world. And we talked a little bit about what role the Fed could play. And he mentioned the the, the Durban Amendment and the responsibilities the Fed has has uh, been given relative to looking at debit fraud and more importantly to look at risk mitigation in the context of debit cards. And it's a possibility that the, the Fed may, because of that particular requirement, be in a position to make some statements that will drive the industry, at least the debit card side of the industry, which frankly is most of the financial institutions, to seriously looking at a way of mitigating fraud. The other comment he made is that in a forum, what he calls the mobile payments industry forum, uh, they've talked about magnetic stripes, and he said that uh, consistently all of the people there have come to unanimity in the understanding that the magnetic stripe as a uh, as a tool for combating fraud is a waste of time. It, it doesn't work any longer. It's too easy to skim the magnetic stripe, and it's too easy to capture the pin, as we've seen in many of the ATM attacks. The other thing that he did say, and, and one of the concerns that I walked away with, is that here the government, who prefers, in the, in the sense of the Fed, to be more laissez-faire in, in, in the way the economy evolves and, and has a certain role to play, but they don't believe that they're in, in a position necessarily to dictate how an industry, the, the, the cards industry, is to move forward. So I suspect that uh, the Fed will take a role as a, um, a facilitator, bringing the right parties together to have the conversations and then allowing those parties to continue offline from the Fed-organized meeting to continue the dialogue. Uh, simultaneously, I think the press is, is is making enough noise. There's enough coming out of, of the industry in terms of the acceptance problems on a global scale, and particularly in the European market for the 10-plus million Americans that travel on an annualized basis and the problems they're seeing. So. You know, things are happening. I, I've also heard a rumor that one of the payment schemes is going to make an announcement uh, in respect to chips, so we're going to have to wait and see. Uh, but there is a concern on my part in terms of where do all the parties come together and how will the government engage while at the same time uh, respecting that uh, the, the government is not supposed to impose. And I don't suppose, Philip, that you'd be able to shed some light on what payment scheme that might be. It's... I, I've heard rumors that Visa would say something. I've also read press in terms of what MasterCard is doing on a global scale that would suggest that MasterCard might do something. 
I've spoken to one or two acquirers who have mentioned that Visa's come in and talked about pilots. Uh, so, th- so there is activity. Uh, the question is, it, you know, a pilot is, is not necessarily a statement of, of uh, intent. It's, it's a statement that we want to try. Um, but I do suspect that we're going to hear uh, probably more from Visa a drive to get there than we are from MasterCard. Great. And going back to the debit issue that you noted, um, interchange, of course, is something that is expected to be an issue. If a move were made to EMV chip and pin, how might that impact interchange in the U.S.? Well, let, let's first look at what's happened outside of the United States as kind of a template for uh, uh, providing a consistent um, solution. And you think about people like Walmart and some of the large retailers who have uh, ex- extensive global presence, they're going to be wanting to see the same kind of activity in this market as they've seen in others. What many countries have done is they've introduced what they call an incentive as a mechanism to help the merchant and the acquirer with the investment that they need to make in the point-of-sale infrastructure. And the incentive typically is a reduction in interchange, and anywhere from 5 to 10 basis points or 0.05% of the transaction. The other thing that we need to take into consideration and was clearly understood when we embarked on developing EMV back in 93-94 is that if we look at what Interchange was originally designed to do, it was designed to cover three costs. The cost of fraud, the system's cost on the issuing side of the equation, and the cost of carry, the, the ability for the merchant to get paid well in advance of the consumer receiving their statement and making payment on their credit card. If fraud is to be mitigated by the introduction of chip and pin, as has been clearly demonstrated is a reality in the UK, France, etc., have all clearly seen a reduction in fraud of a significant amount uh, as they've introduced and reached critical mass of, of uh, EMD cards and terminals in the marketplace then one would expect that the cost incurred by the issuer in the fraud domain would come down. Therefore, there should be a reciprocal reduction in the, uh, in the interchange rate for transactions that are conducted at an EMV terminal where an EMV card is also present. And if we look at interchange today, a key entered transaction or a card not present transaction bears a very different interchange than a fully electronic transaction. So I suspect that we're going to see a new interchange rate like we already have in the Visa MasterCard interchange tables for international transactions where there's a recognition that when a chip transaction is performed, then there is a lesser cost to the issuer, therefore there's lesser interchange. Now going back to another issue that's come up during this conversation, the mobile component. And I'd like for you to talk about chip-based mobile payments. They've been suggested as a way that the U.S. could perhaps bridge its move to EMV. But how would a mobile move jibe with the EMV standard that's already in place in other global markets? And how might this move to mobile impact the multi-use card that you mentioned earlier as far as loyalty, identification, and other things are concerned? Absolutely. Um, Mobile is clearly a much-talked-about topic these days. And if we leave the United States and we look at contactless, there are two forms of contactless transactions being conducted on a global scale. There is an EMV-based form of contactless that we see outside of the United States, 
And there is the magnetic stripe form of contactless that we see here in the United States. So if we move into France, we move to Canada, we move to uh, Korea or uh, Indonesia or Thailand, they have already embraced a form of EMV in a contactless near-field context. And all of their implementations are based on a uh, proprietary implementation of EMV contactless. What is simultaneously happening, because they all recognize that we need to have global standards, is that EMVCO, the body that manages the EMV specification, has committed to producing a EMV contactless specification in 2011. They've already produced some baseline specifications that deal with how do I recognize that there is an EMV contactless application on that card. They want to go the next step and define a coherent and consistent EMV application for the point of sale to device and also for the card. MasterCard, in a a recent um, London presentation, has made the statement that Visa and uh, others have embraced the the MasterCard version of PayPass that's being implemented in Europe and that they have contributed that as a baseline for the work that EMV is doing. So coming back to, to your original question, where are we with mobile? If we look at what the uh, many of the merchants are now saying, they see mobile and near-field communication and EMV being launched simultaneously. They, they recognize that there is a fraud uh, issue in the U.S. marketplace. They recognize that they have a responsibility, and they also recognize that there is value in near-field communication when we talk about other applications such as loyalty and couponing. And so they they are willing and ready to make the investment as long as the time scale is reasonable, as long as the specification is stable, and as long as they get to decide when they do it and they're not mandated by such and such a date, thou shalt do something when such and such a date is is much earlier than the date that uh, they would typically retire or replace the equipment in the marketplace. If we then move to the question of of multi-application, there's uh, a lot of of, uh, conversation around the context of a mobile wallet. And some of it sounds um, like people are using the mobile wallet as a a branding mechanism to talk about their unique solution. When I think about a mobile wallet, I think about taking my current leather wallet and taking everything that's in it and moving it into an electronic format into my mobile phone so that I only carry one thing. I carry my mobile phone, I leave my leather wallet at home, and hopefully I even leave my keys at home. ISIS, uh, the, the recent joint venture between AT&T, MasterCard, or excuse me, AT&T Verifone, T-Mobile with Barclays Card and uh, Discover in the background have talked about the idea of a mobile wallet, and they've clearly identified credit cards, loyalty cards, uh, and other coupons and tickets as things that they would see in their mobile wallet. So they're actually talking about a mobile wallet that takes our leather wallet and merges it. EMV already has built into it a concept called multi-application, it recognizes that we could have multiple payment mechanisms. So I could have my debit card, my credit card, my Amex card, my Discover card, my Visa Chase card, all inside the same smart card. 
and using that same specification that EMVCO is trying to move into a mobile environment, we will see the ability to um, migrate all of our plastic cards into the mobile wallet of the future. Google has also uh, you know, recently acquired a company up in Canada that has uh, patents around the concept of a multi-application wallet. So it'll be interesting to see what they're doing. And then there's been a lot of press around Google's activity and the idea of the, of, of the search for the digital wallet. Apple has been reported to be doing something. Uh, there are lots of people chasing this dream, and I suspect the, the biggest concern is how many consumers will embrace the dream. This is part one of a two-part interview with Philip Andre, an industry consultant who's been involved with the EMV movement since the early 90s. Be sure to check back for part two of this interview, when Andre shares his thoughts about inevitable steps the U.S. payment space will have to take in 2011, and why Andre believes a move to a more secure card technology and standard would eliminate the need for so many investments in fraud detection. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kim. This podcast has been brought to you by BankInfoSecurity.com. For more interviews, breaking news, research, and educational webinars, please visit www.BankInfoSecurity.com.